0: We will read from verse 12 to verse 26. In these days, he, Jesus, went out onto the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. When he came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him, from him, and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, "'Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied.' Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is God's word. Let's be changed by it. So thus far in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is called a few disciples that we've seen. He's He's called Peter and James and John, fishermen, and they immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. He's called Luke, or Levi, who would be called Matthew, the tax collector. But really through Luke's gospel, we've not seen the disciples do a lot. We don't really know what their role is yet. They're just following Jesus, and really the only thing we've seen them do is get grumbled at by Pharisees and get accused of being called Sabbath breakers, um, which Pastor Christian looked at last week. See, the gospel, according to Luke, is all focused on Jesus' life and ministry this far. And so let us not lose just this basic fact of discipleship. It's really all about Jesus. We're reading God, the Luke's gospel and we're curious about the folks who come in and out, but really it's the revelation of Jesus. It's all about knowing and following Jesus, even as disciples are now following him. I would love to have known more details about Peter. Because we saw earlier that his mother-in-law was healed. I want to know about Peter's wife. Tell me a little bit about the family. Like, what, what was Peter's life like? What about Levi the tax collector? Like, how did he get that job? And, and what were the dynamics there? I would, I would love some more of these details, but that's not the point of the gospel. The gospel is written here by Luke that we may have certainty concerning that which we've been taught. And as he would write in Acts, he deals of what Jesus did and taught. So the focus of discipleship is about knowing and following Jesus, obeying Jesus, imitating Jesus, serving Jesus. So the question here is about discipleship, and are we a disciple of Jesus? There's going to be many who will swell around him, but are we disciples of Jesus? And if so, how does that change our life? And not only change the trajectory of our life, how does it change today and tomorrow? How does Tuesday of this week look different because we're a disciple of Jesus? Look with me with verse 12. In those days he went up on a mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer. We've seen this as a pattern in Jesus' life. Even as his fame was spreading and crowds were swelling He would retreat more and more away for private prayer. You remember in verse chapter 5, but even now the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. The more life got busy, crazy busy, the more Jesus prayed. Are we too busy? Are we crazy busy just to have public Private devotion to the Lord, private communion with Him. Because if we're too busy to pray, then how we're living our life is in our own strength. And Seth and Caitlin, I was trying to give a plug there for this month's book club, Crazy Busy. Are we just so crazy busy? So October 26, invited to join Seth and Caitlin McCormick in their home as they have dinner and discussion around a book, Crazy Crazy Busy. Jesus would pull away to pray. In chapter 11, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Who asked Jesus to learn how to pray? One of his disciples, and that's what a disciple is. A disciple sees the master doing something, and a disciple wants to do what the master's doing, or the teacher's doing, it's imitation. So if we keep seeing Jesus praying, finally we've got to ask, Lord teach us to pray. And that's what we will get to in chapter 11. Disciples desire to imitate their teacher. Jesus prays? If we're a disciple of his, we must ask to learn to pray. And what was the focus of his prayer that evening, all through the night, the choosing of apostles from a, amongst the many disciples who were now following, he chose 12. Look with me from verses 13 to 15 and 16. He chose 12 apostles. There were 12 tribes in Israel, but now in this new covenant community, there are going to be 12 who are chosen as the foundation of this new covenant community, the church. Uh, another apostle would be um, appointed Saul of Tarsus with directed mission to the Gentiles. But what is an apostle? It's an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. One who saw, experienced the ministry of Jesus, an eyewitness. And then one who has authority to minister in the special foundation of the church. It's not a perpetual office. But one that had specific purpose for that time. Do you remember what... When Judas Iscariot would betray Jesus and commit suicide, and the number would drop to eleven, they re- replaced him with Matthias. and what was a, a, a care, what was a qualification? We needed someone who has been with us, who's seen this, who's witnessed this. But after the apostles died, they were no longer replaced. just Judas. There are no apostles today, there are those who minister. Maybe with an apostolic gift, a pioneering starting gift. But there's no office today. The apostles and the prophets, the foundation of the church. Who do you see among these 12? Quickly through the names, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Two sibling pairs. Blessing, maybe frustration sometimes, of serving the Lord with family. But blessing to be able to serve with family to serve in the mission of the gospel do you have family members who share your love of Jesus and doesn't that unite you even closer than blood and what we can then do together but how much you then appreciate your family connection with blood do you have family members who you're praying come to saving faith and how your joy would be doubled to not only serve the Lord but to serve it with a brother a sister a mother father aunt uncle At least four of these names are fishermen. One was a tax collector, one was a zealot. There is blessing in unexpected, unnatural relationships in Christ. All walks of life, he calls. Imagine being a tax collector and the zealot in the the boat with the tax collector and the zealot. Talking politics. That's what it was with Levi or Matthew, the tax collector and Simon the zealot. Nothing would have brought them together except Jesus. Most or all of them were Galileans. Most were considered uneducated common men, Acts 4.13. One would become a traitor. And yet he's chosen by Jesus in that nighttime prayer. Why would he do this? Why would Jesus choose someone who would betray him? Was he caught off guard? Why? Why? Jesus' selection of Judas has two primary purposes I see. Many manifold in the wisdom of God, but prophetic purpose. Judas betrayed Jesus so that he was arrested and then handed over to the authorities for crucifixion. But the one who he shared bread with was actually a a fulfillment of Psalm 41. Uh, We were companions together. There's so much fulfillment of ancient prophecy in Judas. But Judas didn't foil the plan no one takes my life from me but I lay it down on my own accord Jesus says but when accused before the high priest and Pontius Pilate the traitor told them where they were praying but he had no testimony to show that Jesus was guilty of anything he couldn't because Jesus is innocent Jesus is blameless Judas is out counting his 30 pieces of silver before quick regret sinks into his soul But there's purpose, prophetic purpose. There's also instructive purpose here as well. Among the twelve, not all were followers of Jesus. True, enduring to the end, followers of Jesus. And so please, we should never expect a perfect church. Churches have both those who are converted and unconverted. Wheat and weeds, according to Jesus' parable in Matthew 13. So, if our aim is that, oh, Jesus, we're going to have a perfect church. He's like, you can't. The angels will sort it out at the end. You're going to end up pulling out, you're going to try to pull up a weed, but you're going to pull up the root of something that's just starting to grow. It's, and so it's going to be a mess. And we should also keep watch on ourselves, on our life and in the teaching. Galatians 6 and 1 Timothy 4 true faith repents of sin, true faith perseveres and we should always seek the grace of God and repentance unto Christ. Peter denied him. Oh, I don't know him. That's not, I wasn't with him. That was heinous. Judas betrayed him. That was heinous. But Peter's restored, and Judas goes and hangs himself. Peter is repentant. Judas is remorseful. He felt sorry, but he didn't throw himself upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We are all heinous sinners of God, against God, but are we throwing ourselves on the grace of God in Christ Jesus? And that's what Peter did. Judas' betrayal is not, or even his suicide, or not the unforgivable sin. It was the refusal to seek and accept the grace of God in Christ But I've already fast-forwarded the story. We're still here on a mountain. Come with me to verse 17. Jesus comes down from the mountain and stands on a level place. A level place. And he's going to start teaching. There's going to start to be red letters in some of your Bibles here. And Luke 6 is called what's called the Sermon on the Plain, or the Plateau. It's usually the Sermon on the Plain. And very quickly, we're going to ask questions like, well, how does this compare to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5: six and seven? Are they the same incident, same teaching, or are they different occasions? And these are curious questions, and this is an open-handed thing. Well, let's not going to argue about it, but let's look at the text because we want to observe the text. The sermon on the plain here in Luke 6, as Jesus came down from the mountain, stood on a level place. It only fulfills the rest of this chapter. On the Sermon on the Mountain, Jesus goes up a mountain, sits down, and teaches the disciples in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's much longer. Maybe we're on the same mountain, and maybe there's just a plain or a plateau on this place up here, and it could be the same place, same occasion. And just they're recounting it at different volumes. Just Luke's giving the condensed version, and Matthew's giving the longer version. Or maybe this is just two different occasions with similar teaching two different sermons. It's not uncommon for a preacher, an itinerant preacher, to have the same teaching. It's not new content every time. It's the same teaching in the ways it expresses differently. Just watch this election like we're ready to ju- jump into. The stump speeches. You're going to hear the same phrases all the time, just said just differently in different locations. personally, not, I, not the Lord, but I. I see these as two different sermons, two different occasions. But there's Bible-believing Christians who believe that um, they could be the same. Who are the groups of people here we see with Jesus? Them, verse 17. Those are the 12 apostles. We see the great crowd of disciples. We see a great multitude of people. People who've traveled a long way to see Jesus. They are afflicted with disease. They are tormented by demons. They came to be healed. But who does he lift up his eyes to in verse 20? His disciples. Everyone here, everyone's in earshot. If you can hear, you can hear. Everyone's in earshot. This is not secretive, exclusive information. This is not insider information. This is for anyone to hear. But it's directed to disciples. Jesus is not here to entertain or inspire. He's here to make disciples. And so he lifts his eyes on his disciples. Many are receiving healing power and perhaps for them, that's the end of their amazement. But who's going to respond? Many pray to God. Many come to God to receive. Fewer will respond. Wide is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way of life. Many will come to God and cry out to God in crisis. Fewer respond to Jesus in discipleship. So are we here to receive, to merely receive? Because God is good and gracious and gives good gifts. He's a good father. He, He hears us when we cry and our petitions to him. But if we're just here to get, then we're just there who just want to see a show, who just have a selfish need. Are we in the crowd of people or are we in the number of disciples? Because he lifts his eyes upon his disciples and said. And on this sermon, on the Sermon on the Plain, he gives four beatitudes and four corresponding woes. There's four blessings and four warnings. And we're going to look at them pair by pair instead of just through four sequentially. The first pair being the poor and the rich. The second, the hungry and the satisfied or full. The third, the weeping and the laughing. The fourth, the hated and the applauded. Jesus has called his disciples to follow. This is grace. He gives them promises of blessing. And then how do we respond? And before we jump off this clip, very, it's all been grace. So let's not make a new law here real quick. All right, man, he would just call me, it's all grace. And now he gets in here. And if you want to be blessed, you're going to be this. And then very quickly, we're going to get into a doing mentality of saying, "Oh, well, if I do this, I get blessed. And all of a sudden, we've lost the good news of Jesus. So as we get ready to jump in these blessings and these woes, and it is based on our life posture and our life activity, please see this and how this is the good news. If you just want to do religion and try to get good enough for God, then you will strive as hard as you can. If I do enough good things, if I am good enough, then I get blessing. That is just religion, religiosity. Do enough, be enough, try hard enough, get blessed. And Jesus comes and flips it. He says you are blessed. I have blessed you grace upon grace. And now, if you are blessed, we then respond. And our response is by grace through faith. We're on a thin line here. And if we flip this and hear this the wrong way, you're going to run out of here trying to do and be better. You're going to want the blessing of God, but you're going to try to do it in your own strength. We are blessed in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. And because of that, how can we not live like this? And because of that, he's actually working in us for his goodwill and pleasure. We are saved by grace, justified by grace, sanctified by grace, sustained by grace, and one day we will be glorified by grace. It's not our performance, it's our posture before a holy God. These blessings come, and we will know them for new life now, but we will know them for eternal life then. And this is the nature of these blessings, please. We've already got them, but yet we don't have the full realization of it. This is God's kingdom now. It's already here, but not yet consummated. It's begun, but it's going to be fulfilled at Christ's coming. And this is another way we can slide off these, this cliff. You can have an under-realized Eschatology or a view of God's kingdom, and you have no faith that He'll actually do anything today. Oh, it's just all future. I'll just, I believe, and I'm just going to wait until Jesus comes back or I die. He's re- nothing's really changing. So I'm just going to. Or you have an over realized eschatology, and you think that we can achieve perfection now. We'll have heaven on earth if we just do enough good things. And we got to live in this tension of the already not yet. And contrasted with these four blessings will come woes, these states of judgment and condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better if that man had never been born. Jesus has lifted his eyes up on his disciples. Jesus blesses his disciples, but everybody can hear the woes. The disciples can hear the woes too, and we need to take stock and have sober judgment of our life which Judas Iscariot did not. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been better if that man had never been born. Let's look at the first pair. This describes what true richness is. Please hear these words. Again, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. This is God in the flesh speaking and teaching his disciples. Blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God but woe to you who are rich for you have received your consolation. I get anxious about these verses right here. Verse 20. When I was in preaching to class um, one of the assignments was spontaneous preaching. And so every time we would show up for class he would say, you, you, and you. Here's your text, text, text. You've got five minutes. You're going to be ready to preach in 15, preach a 15-minute sermon. So I, I go in like anxiety-ridden every time I went into class. Like, is he going to pull some crazy, obscure Old Testament verse? And, and the one he pulled out of the hat for me was Luke 6, 20. And I stumbled through it. And, and he got asked me, he was like, yeah, but what, how do you, how do you, what do you do with it in relation to Matthew 5 and the poor in spirit? Because Luke doesn't say in spirit. it just says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So how do we understand the difference in wording? It's very similar. Matthew 5 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is in the third person, where Luke records it in the second person, Sermon on the Mount says poor in spirit, where Luke records Jesus as saying poor. And so what's Jesus' notion of poor and rich here? Are these just socioeconomic categories in Luke's account? Is there any spiritual identification here like Matthew is more explicit with? And so we've got to be We've got to understand where our New Testament context is and our Old Testament background. And Pastor Christian did this this past summer. And I'm just going to fast forward this forward a bit. If we are not aware of this, if we don't jump into the context of the New Testament and the Old Testament background, we are going to import our socioeconomic convictions, our economic philosophies into the text. And worldly capitalists, pagan capitalists, are just going to look at this and be very dismissive of any um, spiritual notion. And the socialists, the social justice warriors, are going to grab this text, even in our day I, I can't believe this is happening in our, but in our day, they're going to grab this text <coughs> and dismiss any spiritual meaning. And so not to redo all of Christians' work, but the poor. Biblically defined are those who do have a desperate need in this world. There's a socioeconomic reality that these people are living in whose helplessness drives them to God. A dependent relationship upon God. They need God to supply needs. They need God to vindicate and this is those of little means, Zechariah 7. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. That's people who don't have anything. No materi- they're in material need. But we also read Psalm 70. But I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer, O Lord. Do not delay. That's King David. king so how do we reconcile the notion of poverty when you've got people who who we would say they don't have anything and then you've got the king of israel righteousness does not come from our material state it comes not by our socio-economic poverty or our wealth or class standing righteousness comes through christ jesus by the grace of god and the grace of god alone But it is easier for the poor to sometimes realize this than the rich. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, nothing's impossible with God. We we can get a rich person through that eye of that needle. But it's harder. And others are sown among the thorns. Those who are hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches... And the desires for other things enter it and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Blessed are the poor. Why? Because their worldly state drives them to understand their need of something beyond themselves. Those with wealth are more tempted towards self-reliance. When a problem happens in life, when there's a need, you can write a check. Just flash the card. Just make it a make a withdrawal. I can always pay to answer my problems. But the poor can't. So they have to just, what's beyond me? I don't, I can't even do it myself. So is your instinct more towards self-reliance or God dependence? That will show whether you have a poverty of spirit or not. There are really four categories of people in the scripture according to righteousness and w- wealth. There's the righteous rich. There's like rich people in the Bible, had a lot of stuff, and they loved Jesus, they loved the Lord. Abraham had a whole lot of stuff. David, Joseph, second in command of Egypt. Boaz, good businessman. Lydia underwrote the Philippian church. Joseph of Arimathea donated his tomb so that our Lord could be buried in it. The righteous rich. There's the unrighteous rich. Idolatrous kings of Israel and Judah. The rich young ruler who rejected Jesus. And then there's the unrighteous poor. That lazy fool in Proverbs. And then there's the unrighteous rich. Or there's the righteous rich. Ruth, the Moabite, Mary, Mary, the mother of our Lord, the poor widow who gives two small copper coins in the temple, which Jesus noticed, the Macedonian churches who give out of their poverty, And Jesus in his incarnation. See, righteousness doesn't come based on our material state. It comes through the grace of God in Christ Jesus. But careful, those who are poor in this world will know their need of something beyond themselves. But the poor in spirit are both the righteous rich and the righteous poor. Well, Lord, I volunteer for the righteous rich category. I would, I would, I would underwrite your mission to the ends of the earth and I would be a good steward. of. All. Have the lions fallen for you in pleasant places. Psalm 16. Is the Lord our cup? Is he our chosen portion? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he, though he was rich, yet for he, your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so this is eternal God, forever glory, r- the richness of eternal glory in heaven, and yet incarnates in this world and be- becomes poor. So identifies with us in our poor and needy state before holy God. And yet, so that we may know the richness, the true richness, dies for us. Jesus died for us so that our sins can be forgiven, we can be made clean, and we can be given the richness of God. Do you believe this? This is why Jesus came. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It doesn't just go to those who have material need, but those who realize their need of God. So ultimately, poverty is not our possessions. Poverty is our posture. Do you need Jesus? Are you poor and powerless like we just sang about? Or will we buy our salvation through life, whether we have a lot of money or a little? Here's the judgment. Here's the woe. You've already received your consolation. Woe. You've sought to have heaven here on earth. This is as good as it's going to get. Go ahead and hoard up. You can't take it with you. It will not go with you to the fires of hell. But this is the blessing for those who are righteously poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. We don't know it all right now, but we, we can have peace in our soul, know forgiveness before God. We can now see the grace of God in our life. What richness that is. And we will one day know unmatched, unrivaled, eternal joy in the age to come. And this is true richness. So if God so blesses us, both in this day and the day to come, how can we then not love others in both word and deed, and give generously. Look at the next pair. It's another consequence of poverty, it's hunger. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. This has spiritual implication, even though those who are hungry and don't know where the next meal is coming from Will cry out for something beyond themselves. Jesus said this in Matthew 5 Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you remember what the Virgin Mary sang after the angelic announcement of being to conceive, she would conceive and bear a son by the power of God? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. See, food is a basic human need. What's the distance, what's the time since your last consumption of something? What's the longest you've gone without eating? We need this. We need food for the maintenance of our cells, our organs, our systems. Iron, the mineral iron. If we don't get it, somehow in our nutrition, our red blood cells are going to suffer. We're going to become anemic. Iron. We need a mineral iron. I taught about iron as an earth science teacher. That's got to get in my body? So we need food for nourishment, for the maintenance of just existing. But we've also been created to enjoy it its cultural flavors, its use in fellowship and celebration. The comedian Jim Gaffigan says cake is a powerful food. Think of just how cake brings us together. I had a text this past week. Do you like carrot cake or do you like vanilla cake? Yes. I mean, what? what is, is it a choice? Hunger ultimately is not about the fill of our in this world, but our satisfaction in Christ? Do you desire Jesus? Are you hungry for Him? Are you satisfied, or are you satisfied with this world? Because here's the woe to those who are full. You will be eternally hungry. You've sought satisfaction here on earth, and this is as good as it's going to get for you. Eat, drink, be merry, straight to the fires of hell. Woe. But those who are blessed, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, shall be satisfied. We can partake of the Lord Jesus Christ, feasting on his grace in our life. And one day we will sit at his table that he will spread abroad for all peoples who love him. and We will be truly satisfied with Christ forever. And if we are so satisfied in Christ, how can we not then so love others in word and deed? Look at the third pair. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to those who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. This is another consequence of poverty, weeping. Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And so in the sufferings and hardships in this fallen world, we weep. We're weeping in our hardships. Relational strains and stresses and fractures and families and friendships, workplace strife, financial strains, just not sure how you, then physical hardships, your body's not working like it used to, you've received a diagnosis, you weep. We weep with losses, the death of a loved one, miscarriage, natural disaster, So joy ultimately is not our happiness in this world, but in Christ. And so do we weep in this fallen world while at the same time rejoicing in Christ? See, here's the judgment for those who laugh now. It doesn't mean that we don't laugh now. But those who just find their their joy in this world and nothing beyond it. There's eternal weeping that awaits. Gnashing of teeth and Weeping. Because if we're trying to find our full happiness in this world, this is as good as it's going to get. And we can keep laughing in our worldliness straight to the fires of hell. But the blessing for those who truly weep, who weep for sin, who weep in hardship and suffering, but yet have faith in Christ, they shall laugh. So we can have joy of soul now rejoice in our sufferings in witness to the world and one day there's a complete joy coming in which he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more nor mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. And if we have been so comforted, how can we then not love others in word and deed and comfort them? Are we blessed in this way? The fourth pair Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in this day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so they did to their fathers, the fa- the, so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you when people speak well of you. Their fathers did that to the false prophets. See, we've, when you're poor, you're also hungry and you're also weepy. Those are just the, the postures of being poor. Now comes the, res- the reaction, or here, here comes the, res- the implication of that in the world. The first three Beatitudes address our condition, the final speaks to the fate that awaits us. And we got to decide what do we want? Do we want the approval of God or the approval of the world? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you, Christ says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life. In Christ Jesus, we'll be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3. So if if we want to love the Lord and serve him and be a witness to him, we will get the hostility of the world. Do we need people to like us? Do you need acceptance? And what will we exchange in for for that? But here's the reward in heaven. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of the man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. A parable, but well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. See, true reward is not acceptance in this world, but our reception by Christ. Do we want people to like us? Church, they're liking you less. There's more reviling on the way. I'm not a prophet but let me be prophetic enough. It's, it's In our lifetime and the lives of our kids, it's going to get rough. I may be wrong. I pray there's revival, reformation, renewal, and just, but at this trajectory, who will stand firm? Are we just going to privatize our faith? Are we going to change our view of Scripture to fit the world? Here's the judgment for those who are accepted and lauded by the world. you found acceptance by others but you denied the faith. Enjoy the pats at the backs for many others as they push you straight to the fires of hell. But the blessing for those who suffer for Christ's sake, great is your reward in heaven. Yes, you're rejected, you're ridiculed, you're reviled. But what's going to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? We get to be with Jesus forever, and if we have such an eternal reward... How can we not suffer for Christ's sake? If He has so suffered for us, how can we not follow Him and rejoice in our sufferings in this very short life? Many come to God to receive, but few will come to Jesus and respond. Jesus is true richness. Jesus is true satisfaction. Jesus is true joy. Jesus is our reward. And so are you poor? Are you hungry? Are you weeping now? Do you know the sin of your soul before a holy God? And do you need God as your Savior because you cannot save yourself? Have you come to the place of being hated or sneered at for your witness unto Christ? According to Jesus' words, here in the Gospel of Luke, He says, you're blessed. And is that good enough? Blessed are you who are poor, you're hungry, you're weeping, you're reviled. One day this blessedness will be known in perfection when Jesus comes and we will be with Him forever. And do we long for this, hope for this? Discipleship is all about knowing and following Jesus. And woe to us who seek satisfaction in this world. You're not going to be good enough to get the blessing of God. But Jesus was so that he can give us the blessing of God. Many come to receive few We'll come to Jesus and respond. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray.